Whoo, it is time for your Zomia One Underground Q&A for the week. And what a week it has been. Of course, really Star Wars filled as far as a, as far as a week goes. Got a lot of great response from the episode of TIE Fighter Renegades where my man Rob and I both reviewed uh, Rise of Skywalker and got some things to say on that. But, you know, real quick, actually, so, Ellen, you went and saw this with me. I mean, what did you think of, of Rise of Skywalker? Did you did you like it? It had its ups and downs. Its ups and downs? Yeah, overall it's entertaining. Best part of the movie? Uh, <laughs> Would it be that little guy? The little guy, yeah. Babu Frick? Babu Frick. Ba- <laughs> okay. That cute little monkey. <laughs> but you, yeah, but I mean, you, you liked it. It had, it, it had its moments, right? That was... Sure, I mean, there are a lot of good ideas. I, I think you mentioned that, too, in, in your mm-hmm. show with Rob, but just too fast. Too I fast. Way too fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that movie was at a, at a blazing pace. I mean, just full throttle, like, right from the beginning. You're right. Yeah. Well, anyway, okay. Well, there you go, folks. You have Ellen's uh, Ellen's take um, on Rise of Skywalker. A quick take on it, but uh, yeah, that was that was a good time. You know, a little RPX action. I mean, that was that was nice. Um, anyway, you know, speaking of like a lot of those details, I I did. We talked about this when Rob and I did the review, um, where I mentioned the Visual Dictionary. Now, at the time, I had only read through it for about an hour. Now, I'm a very fast reader. Uh, also a fast listener. <laughs> so, but uh, uh, I have dug deeper into the book and there's actually, frankly, there's a lot of things here. I mean, that bolster a lot of what Rob and I had said, um, actually including my point that basically they just copied Dark Empire, which again, I'm okay with that, uh, frankly. Um, but like, there's a point where there's these uh, red... You have the Sith Troopers, right? But then around that... Unfortunately, you know, we didn't bring this part up. But like the the emperor having that Sith throne felt very Game of Thrones, and and I'm so fucking annoyed by Hollywood thinking they have to constantly copy Game of Thrones. I mean, and not that Star Wars is the only one. Frankly, Star Trek Discovery has done it. I've talked about that since Discovery first came out. Uh, it's so bad. But the the troopers that had like the capes, they didn't really look like the Royal Guard that you remember from Return of the Jedi. Uh, but the the troopers, the Sith troopers, the red guys that had the capes that were around the Emperor on Exegol, they're actually called Sovereign Protectors, uh, which that is directly lifted, unquestionably, because I don't think they were ever really used again. That is directly lifted from Dark Empire. So there's no doubt that they were copying that. I mean, that they, I mean, the story group knows this stuff better than anybody and not to say JJ Abrams like had any, or even now probably has any clue what the fuck a sovereign protector is. Uh, but I, I thought that that, you know, when I read that in the book, I was like, Oh yeah, that, there it is. Uh, but this is really to understand so much, you know, I just, I just want to bring this up cause I don't know if we'll get to it. Uh, we might talk about it on the next tie fighter renegades that, that Rob and I do, but so much of what happens in the film is far more deeply explained in the visual dictionary. And actually really it's, if you wanted a book that allows you to understand the entire sequel trilogy of star Wars, that's your book, the visual dictionary for uh, for rise of Skywalker, because it does cover things that have been talked about. And it actually even gives more secrets even though I, again, I've gotten every visual dictionary and cross-section book and encyclopedia uh, that has come out since Disney took over, pretty much. Um, there might be a book here or there where I looked at it and I go, well, this isn't really encyclopedic. I, I want the technical manuals and the encyclopedic, right? Um, but I might not have picked them up, but by and large, I have them all. And even, you know, I've <laughs> amazingly, you know, Disney's only owned Star Wars since 2013, but even within that tenure, they have released multiple editions of certain books, uh, like Ultimate Star Wars. There have been two or three of those since Disney took over. I have all of them. Um, but, you know, even though I've picked up all the visual dictionaries for every movie, there's still new stuff uh, that applies to Last Jedi and Force Awakens that's in the Rise of Skywalker visual dictionary. So if you ever wanted something somewhat encyclopedic, you want to grab this. In fact, you know, something that was almost insulting when I was reading through it, and I feel like it's almost insulting. So you got to understand, I have been into technical manuals. Okay. Now, I don't know if this is just how my head works 
or what, because I'm as much into technical manuals, you know, for real world uh, technology as I am for fictional, right? So in the 90s, you had this big deal. Del Rey Books was coming out with what they called these essential guides for Star Wars, where they would be these, you know, very, very technical manuals. And Del Rey, of course, is also publishing all of the old expanded universe stuff that's not canon anymore, but still a lot of it was still great. Uh, Star Wars material, you know, they were putting all of that out there back then. And they came up with a system of dating where uh, of dating the events that occur within star Wars and what they had, it was called ABY and BBY BBY stood for before the battle of Yavin, which of course is what happens in episode four, right? At the time that was, I mean, this is even before the prequels were a thing. This is, you know, the biggest event, the destruction of the death star is the biggest event in star Wars history. So it's a fine thing to choose. Uh, and then ABY would be after the battle of Yavin, for example, um, Empire Strikes Back would take place three ABY, three years after episode four, and it's, you know, three three years after the Battle of Yavin. Return of the Jedi would take place at four ABY, which was a year later. Now, and then, and then you can get into, like, episode three, I think, is 19 BBY, right? 19 years before the Battle of Yavin, and so on. Um, in the beginning of this book, it gives you almost a full timeline of the cinematic history of Star Wars. But instead of using BBY and ABY, it actually uses what it calls BSI and ASI, which is the same concept, but it's before the Starkiller incident and after the Starkiller incident. Um, and they even mentioned the Mandalorian, I think here, uh, and it, you know, it goes basically says, you know, 66 BSI is right around when it was when episode one took place and then one ASI as in after the star killer incident is when rise of Skywalker takes place. So this is a great book to, I mean, if, if you're into the sequel trilogy or you still happen to, you still have your passion for star Wars intact. And I don't blame you if you don't. Um, but if you do this, this is the book don't, if you've, if you wanted to get into like a, you know, some kind of encyclopedic text around star Wars, this is your one, especially because again, it does cover a lot of history. And I mean, the Sith stuff in this just, I mean, that's what gets me going. Like, I mean, that's the stuff I love to read about. I remember back when this is after West End Games, when Wizards of the Coast, this would have been around around when Episode One came out, so ninety nine, when they took over the Star Wars role playing game, the tabletop, and they switched from D six to D twenty. Uh, one of the first books they came out with was the Dark Side, uh, the Dark Side Source book. I think they called it. Man, I read that book cover to cover over and over again. You know, it, it, it talked about the Sith, talked about Marco Ragnos, you know, and, and everything, Sith holocrons and all the shit. Oh, it's so solid. A lot of good Sith stuff in this book. A lot of, a uh, lot of philosophy, which is important to get into somewhere because I mean, you know, I, I, I gotta say this, like, and I think I mentioned it. I see Rob and I, we had a little bit of conversation off air beforehand because we were just so excited to talk about you know to geek out as we do get sweaty you know about star wars and so I, there's some things i feel like maybe that didn't get into the audio <laughs> that, that we recorded and that we had said before um but i mean and, and the point i want to bring up with that is that now you know as to where i felt the one thing that rise of skywalker did do right is that now it explains really like what the first order is what the idea was as to where before it was just like, okay, this is just a simple villain. Now that you attach it to this massive Sith history, not just the emperor, you know, not just Palpatine, but this long thousand years, you know, Sith history. Now it suddenly becomes like a menace and something you understand and, uh, you know, and something that has a place and that has meaning behind it. And so I, I'm actually kind of excited to watch the sequel trilogy again, just so that I can appreciate the first order for what it really is instead of it just being some mysterious kind of seemingly pointless, you know, a uh, villain, villainous organization, 
um, within Star Wars. So, I, you know, I dig that. But anyway, but I frankly, I wouldn't have even really known that. I mean, the movie kind of gives you that, but you get so much more, again, when you get into this book with a visual dictionary. Uh, so check that out if you, if you haven't yet. But we're not here to talk Star Wars. We're here to get, I mean, we are here to talk Star Wars. We're here to talk about whatever. Anything that happens on Zomi 1 and Star Wars is, frankly, a big part of Zomi 1 because TIE Fighter Renegades is a fairly popular show uh, on the network as a whole and, and otherwise. But let's get into our questions for this week, and we're going to see. I got I got a few good ones. Uh, I think four, three or four really great ones. Um, we'll try and get into a couple of them uh, anyway, and from a great listener, and I, I just I, I want to deep dive on these, so I want to get into them. But you know, actually, you know, quick before we do, look if you want, if you have any kind of review, any thoughts on Rise of Skywalker. I know I have some listeners already that told me they hated it. And I totally understand where you're coming from because I mean, it is a, I mean, just like Ellen was just saying, it's a mess of a fucking film. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, and, and it just goes at this breakneck speed that I don't think we're used to even in star Wars. I mean, it, it, it was very, very odd as far as that goes. So I get it, but I'd love to hear from you. And we will actually, I will gladly read your reviews um, on the next episode of TIE Fighter Renegades, or if you want, I can get to get to them on a Zomi One uh, Underground Q and A, uh, if you want. But anyway, let's get let, let's get into some of these questions here. Well, actually, we'll open this baby up uh, with one that that could end up getting fairly technical, uh, but I think it's an important question and a great question. And these, it's one of these subjects that I, I say often. You know, you need to revisit every once in a while. Like we're gonna go over. You know, something that I get asked about a lot is, okay, what VPN do I use? I mean, you have no idea how often I get that question. And I don't mind fielding it once or twice a year, you know, just in case there needs to be an update. Well, guess what? Right now, there needs to be an update because I am very intrigued by WireGuard, uh, which is a protocol like OpenVPN. It's not actually a VPN service. It's a, it's a full-on protocol. Uh, that operates at the OS level and, or at the kernel level within Linux. And I mean, it can work in other operating systems too, but that's something I need to do my own research on. And actually I'm intrigued to hear from some others about their research on it. Uh, so, you know, the VPN question is going to come up again. And I mean, I get asked it a lot, but another question that I get a lot is, okay, what operating system do I use? And this question has really picked up in the past year because People are really fucking sick of Windows 10. They're sick of Apple not giving a shit about Macs. Not really, you know? And I get that. I, I've had listeners email me and say that they're... I mean, I can't believe how many... Now, I used to be... See, I used to be a Google fanboy back when they were, you know, the the, the do-no-evil company. Um, <laughs> that changed. Or, or maybe it just came to light. It didn't really change. Um, but I used to be very supportive of Chromebooks. I'm like, yeah, go ahead. You know, everybody rock a Chromebook because most of you are just on the internet doing whatever you're doing on social media every anyway. So who gives a shit? Um, and I've gotten, you know, I mean, and, and my opinion on that changed, but I hear from a lot of listeners that, oh no, we're using Chromebooks now. We're using Chrome OS. And I kind of get where you're coming from, you know, and, and there's, oh, there's a conversation. There is a conversation. We're not going to, I don't think I'm going to get into it here. You know, Isis Lovecraft, she, <laughs> she, on, on, speaking of on Twitter, she made, she was, she, a cybersecurity specialist. I follow her. She, um, she, she made a statement. Basically she was sharing this really, really crazy exploit. And this is just a few days ago. And she shared, and she just responded to it with computers were a mistake. And, and I was just like, you know, I mean, when, when, when you are a cybersecurity specialist, you know, or a security researcher or whatever, and after, on a long enough timeline, these thoughts can't help, but like seep in that, holy shit, we just, we got it all goddamn wrong. This is all wrong. <laughs> you know, it's all fucked up. And I'm certainly like at a on, a, on a certain plateau of that right now where everything, you know, I just, you just, you want to light a fire to everything, you know, you're, you're, you're so fucking sick of it. 
and you know how deep the problems are, right? Kernel level, coding language level, whatever. And you just get tired of it. And, and you kind of want to be like, yeah, you know what? I, I just want to go through the world without one of these fucking things. And I, I mean a, dev, a computing device of whatever, you know, manufacturer, smartphone, laptop, desktop, you take your pick. I mean, you just, you get to that point when you're, when you're a security. And I, I know I'm not the only one. Don't, don't think I'm the only guy that somehow early, I mean, I, cause I certainly have plenty of people emailed with this calling me a Luddite and all this other horseshit. No, 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 no. But I guarantee you, you talk to a lot of cybersecurity specialists and security researchers and they're about to the point where they're just like, oh, you know, fuck it all. <laughs> because I mean, you can't give up or as I'm not, I shouldn't say that you can, um, you know, you don't want to give up, but at the same time, it's just, you just feel so browbeaten about it, you know, and, and you just want to go through life. I mean, me, I have days where I just feel like going through life, living out of a gym bag or something. You know what I mean? It, it, because you're just so sick and you don't want any device. And you're just so sick of all the fucking, like all the flaws, all the, all the exploits that come out every day. And, and oh, you just, you, you get done with it. So, but let's get it. You know, the, the question here is what operating system to use. We haven't, I mean, it, it's a specific question. They ask the specifics between two operating systems and we'll get into them. But even one of these has recently had a, a horrible, horrible fucking exploit against it. And, oh man. I, <laughs> anyway, this got DM'd to me on Twitter and it is, do you think OpenBSD is a more secure operating system than Cubes? course cubes cubes os right uh this is a very popular now thankfully and frankly popular due to edward snowden um but this is a it's linux based it's not bsd and of course you know bsd and linux are not the same thing even though they share one could argue very similar code bases and one certainly sprung out of the other in a very real way but it wasn't exactly a fork not not i don't think in the technical terms you would use that but anyway um cubes os is a Linux operating system that effectively, thanks to, I guess, well, okay, yeah, I mean, any computer that can really do virtualization with the processor, it allow, it, it's, it's able to take advantage of that process to where every, not just the operating system, but every single app within the operating system works within a sandbox. Okay. And, you know, works with almost like every app is its own operating system. It's a very clever idea. It's a very well done idea. Um, OpenBSD, on the other hand, which I have said throughout the entirety of Sovereign Tech's run, so almost 10 years, uh, and I said it long before. OpenBSD is my favorite operating system. It is my, it is my go-to. It is what, uh, you know, if I were doing, if I were setting up, um, a business or if I was setting up, you know, whatever, some kind of workstation situation, uh, I mean, the heart of that would be OpenBSD, no matter what, just a fact of life. Okay. But OpenBSD recently had a really, really nasty authentication exploit. And to make matters worse, okay, and I mean, we're talking in November that this that this was discovered, okay? Now, it's actually, no, it's earlier this month in December. Now, it's already been patched, okay? And if you are somebody using OpenBSD, it's a pretty good bet you already heard about it. But do look into how to update if you're using 6.5 or 6.6. This has already been patched, but the irony was... And, and I hate this, okay, is that it used basically a local privilege escalation through XLock. Okay, now XLock is what handles passwords, all this different stuff. But not only that, it's all authentication. So that includes YubiKeys and SKeys, right? So you could, what could happen here is, is that once they uh, uh, gained access basically to the user, to the auth user group, Okay, on you know on an OpenBSD uh, uh, station system, they would then get secondary. Uh, uh, they'd escalate to to you know the secondary root access 
to where they would get access to the protocol that takes advantage of YubiKeys. And then they could just make up whatever key they wanted at that stage. And the and the operating system would say, oh, okay, yeah, come on in. So you didn't even have to have the right YubiKey. And, oh, man, I mean, that that's, let's just call it, that's a pain in the dick. Like, that sucks. Uh, I, <laughs> like, that hit me twice. Because it's like, oh, man, oh, they found an exploit in OpenBSD in the auth system. But then it was taking advantage of what was set up in OpenBSD to allow for the use of YubiKeys. And I, you know how much I support the use of YubiKeys. And I was like, oh, motherfucker. I mean, that's just, <laughs> I mean, that's bad. You know, now granted, as, as I understand, I mean, it's not, it, you had to be local, right? You know, it had to be evil made more or less. Actually, we're going to get into that in a second. Okay. It's not something that, uh, you know, that can be done remotely and that's good, but shit, that sucked. Um, cubes has not really run into those kinds of situations so often. Of course, OpenBSD has a tremendous history of being really rock solid as long as you don't go adding, once you start adding in third-party software, uh, you know, then some bets, not all, but then some bets are off. Uh, I will still stand by, despite that situation, which got patched pretty much immediately. Despite that situation, I still stand by OpenBSD as being the more secure of the two. Um, and part of the reason that I say that, now, I mean, I, I guess, okay, let me caveat this. Because if you're going to add in a bunch of apps and, I, and software, and I totally understand why you would, it's a fucking computer, right? Cubes uh, will handle third-party software in a much more secure way than, say, OpenBSD would. But OpenBSD now comes with so many things pre-installed, um, and also you no longer have the issue, you don't need uh, the Linux compatibility layer anymore with an OpenBSD. Um, a lot of those third-party concerns have really been resolved. So it's still kind of why I'm standing by OpenBSD, but I could see where, on a, in a very simplified argument, where you could say that Cubes OS is actually the more secure if you're going to install a bunch of different you know, software. Uh, into it because at that stage yeah cubes os does a better job of of like third-party uh, uh software security but just by its nature by what it is by the sandboxing and all this so that's that's what i would say to that but out of the box you know i still think OpenBSD is the more solid also OpenBSD has a much broader uh hardware set that it can work with, okay, as to where Cubes OS is, it's not really limited. I mean, if you're using any computer from the past 10 years, Cubes OS is probably going to do just fine for you. But, but OpenBSD, again, you know, does have, it's compatible with more hardware configurations. Um, and, but I mean, so in a way it comes down to, you know, personal taste and tolerance and, and hardware as well. Uh, what you want to run that with. Um, Cubes OS is certainly a lot easier to install on. It's easier to install. Again, like I said, OpenBSD can run on more hardware, technically. But, you know, the install process for OpenBSD is not the simplest thing on, on planet Earth, even though they it has dramatically improved over the years. Uh, as to where Cubes OS is something that just about anybody, I think, could install. I mean, there's going to be a lot of questions that it's going to ask you that you might not know exactly how to answer, but by and large cubes OS, I mean, and, and part of this is because cubes OS is partly developed with, you know, activists and other people in mind in that sense, you know, that really need this ease of use, very hardened security. Um, but if you know what you're doing, I mean, it, it, it kind of reminds me of the iOS and Android debate where people say, well, out of the box, iOS and is much more secure and it's security that everybody else can do. But Android, if you know what you're doing, can be far more secure than iOS. And I think it's kind of a similar argument here. I think OpenBSD overall can be more secure, but you gotta know what you're doing. As to where CubesOS can be a lot easier for a lot of people to end up uh, in installing. In fact, I went to a meetup Oh boy. Well, I guess this is about two years ago now, at least. Um, but I went to a meetup 
where people were being shown how to install Cubes OS. Uh, and you could do that. As to where, if you went to a meetup and you brought in layman people and you tried to show them how to install, you know, OpenBSD, you know, <laughs> gra grab a lounge chair because it's going to be a while. <laughs> and even then, you know, it, it's a debate whether or not, uh, you know, people would get it up and running. So, you know, there's there's two ways you can go with that. And, I mean, one could, I think you can kind of say it's, both are the most secure depending upon who's using it, right? I think that kind of argument could get made. Um, but I, I would personally say I think OpenBSD is still the king, is still, you know, the, the top of the heap as far as most secure operating systems uh, out there. And learning BSD in general is a, is a very good thing. And I think that in the future... You know, knowing BSD more so than even Linux could become a very, could be very useful. How about I put it that way? But I would have to go into rampant speculations and possibilities as to why knowing BSD would be so important. Um, you know, and I mean, you can rock FreeBSD as well. There's a lot more documentation and FreeBSD has a lot more, uh, it's a lot easier to install and has a lot more um, uh, hardware configurations that it can work with, even than, especially like without a lot of complex setup, uh, than OpenBSD does. And interestingly, too, uh, there has been a major push for gaming to become a thing with OpenBSD, which I don't know what is exactly surrounding that. I don't know how that ends up becoming a thing. I mean, I've gotten... Uh, you know, like a, like a, a Z doom, right? I've gotten Z doom to work on or GZ doom. Sorry. Uh, I've gotten GZ doom to work on an open BSD machine, you know, so you can play doom, you can play sigil, right? Um, you can play some of that stuff or checks wars. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of surprised by this new push where there are a lot of people who are very, very interested in open BSD being used as some kind of gaming machine. That's a little weird, I don't think that's ever really going to happen. And in fact, I, I would like NVIDIA's clause to never be involved with OpenBSD, but that, that's a thing that's happening out there. So, all right. Now, this next question uh, is one I really like, and I have two more beyond this, but they kind of play into each other. In fact, they have to do with MadeSafe as well as cryptocurrencies in general. And I think I'll save those for next week, for, for the next uh, Q&A. But this one plays into, I think it does play into those, but it also plays off of what we were just describing as in, you know, what's the most secure operating system to use, uh, et cetera. And I think there kind of might be a third answer here, uh, as, as far as like, what's the most secure operating system to, to really use. And, I'm, and we'll get into this and we'll talk about it, but here's, here's the question. Can we speculate on what Steve Gibson, of course, Steve Gibson of the Security Now podcast and my personal hero, uh, does to protect his computers when he leaves his house. Are there other more practical ways to protect the physical security of your equipment against evil made like attacks? Now, an evil made attack, folks, is basically uh, the concept is, is that, you know, somebody could, you know, if they came, if they were in your hotel room, Okay, if you're at your hotel room, you left your laptop in your hotel room, uh, you know, and the maid came in to clean something and she did something like put a key logger or did something physical, you know, the USB device, whatever, to your laptop while you're away and you didn't know. Okay, so that's 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 the basic idea behind an evil maid attack. Of course, it doesn't require a hotel room or an actual maid. Could be anybody that does that kind of action, right? It's a local attack that, you know, happens right there uh, against your devices. That that's the idea. But anyway, let, let, let's keep going here. Uh, Haven app doesn't work great in homes shared between multiple people. Uh, yeah, yeah. Haven is a cool idea. Of course, the Haven app is one, another thing that was actually promoted by Edward Snowden, where you take your old Android phones and you use them as basically as security cameras that can get access through the Haven app on say, while you're away. Um, but yeah, that, that runs into issues where, you know, you might not be in complete control of the home. You might have roommates. I mean, all these kinds of things that, that could end up being an issue. Um, 
And, you know, having like roommates or, you know, multi-people living situations, I mean, that's becoming more common by the day, right? As the economy tanks, and it is, uh, as the economy, you know, shits the bed, or even if you just want to save money, the economy doesn't even have to be shit if you just want to save money. Um, you know, living with more than one per, you know, having multiple people in your home, uh, can be a very practical, you know, thing to do. I completely understand that. So, you know, that way you're, instead of your, you know, your monthly rent being, I don't know, $2,000, it's only 400 or 500 or something. I mean, that's great, right? Sure. So wanting to physically, you know, protect the physical security of your equipment at home is a very valid, very real thing that needs to be talked about. Now, I'm going to slightly sidestep this. I've kind of gotten this question before, and I will get to actual things that everybody can do. Okay. So the reason he brought up Steve Gibson, I'm guessing is because, uh, so I saw Steve Gibson at the unlocked event a couple months back, um, in Boston and there I was shocked. And I think a lot of people were that. So Steve Gibson doesn't leave his home very often, or at least not for extended periods of time, but he, you know, he's been, I mean, squirrel has been released. We're going to end up talking about that. I'm actually taking advantage of squirrel right now. I am implementing it into a website. Um, squirrel, his authentication method, squirrel has been unleashed upon the world. Okay. Very exciting thing, but he was basically doing a little bit of a world tour of showing people and giving demonstrations of squirrel. And one of these events where he talked about it was at the unlocked event. Okay. Uh, that last pass was holding in Boston. It was a great event. I, I talked about it already on sovereign tech prime, as well as on underground episodes. So, but when he was there, he said, and again, this shocked me. And like I said, a lot of other people, I think, but he said, he says, yeah, when I, when I left my, my home to do this little tour, none of my computers are at the house. Whoa. Right. And, and, and he kind of speaks at the, I, when I got a question like this long before, this is a couple of years ago, when I gotten a similar question to this, it speaks to my answer that I had at the time when somebody was asking the same thing. In fact, I think the, the, the person was moving. And so they were wondering, Hey, you know, when I have like people coming in for an open house and I'm trying to sell my home, I don't want to pull out all my equipment because I'm still living there, you know, but when people come in to look at it, I want to make sure this shit's secure. What do I do? It was a great question. Um, and my, my answer that I'm about to give you does not really speak to that because or it doesn't entirely speak to that, but anyway, let's get into it. I think Steve Gibson's solution is a great one, right? Is store when you're going to be away for extended periods of time, store your shit somewhere else, but we can't all do that. Now here's the thing. And, and, and it's funny. Cause I think for a lot of people, this is going to sound like cloud computing. It is. And it isn't okay. The most secure thing you can do in my opinion and, and actually this ironically kind of speaks to Chromebooks as well. Okay. If for whatever reason, if you can't have all your shit stored on a laptop that you can just pick up and take and go. Okay. And that is your one computer to rule them all. And that's where, you know, all your data sits, even though you should have external hard drives that back up all your stuff, right. And maybe even make images of your OS and whatever else. Okay. You know, those are all good things to do, but if you can't just have one computer and you need either multiple computers or you, for whatever reason, need to have uh, remote access to your data for reasons as simple as maybe like we've talked about recently, perhaps you're still doing a Plex server or, um, or you just need access. You want your photos backed up somewhere and not to Google, or, you know, you want access to your music wherever you go without having to carry your laptop around. And in fact, you can't even play your music because if you're carrying your laptop around, it's shut off and that's your Plex server and you're fucked. Right. I mean, like the, there's, there's so many scenarios here where you could want this. So let me lay this on you. And then again, we will talk about what you could do with the actual like equipment that you might have at the house. So a great thing to have is, as I've said often on the show, is have a NAS. Okay, fine. We live in a world where you're on the go and, but you also, you know, and, and you need remote access to your data, but at the same time, you don't want that remote access be access to Google or Microsoft or whoever, you know, with, uh, you know, with either Google drive or OneDrive or Dropbox or you name it. 
So a great, you know, I don't want to say it's middle of the road, but a great thing to get people used to is to having their own cloud, right? Like a NAS, network area storage. This is a very important thing, I think, to get people on board with, okay? Because it allows them to be mobile, allows them to access data remotely like they're used to, but then at the same time, now this isn't my complete answer, but I'm getting to it. But then at the same time, um, it's not giving everything to whatever, you know, asshat company who will gladly handle it, hand it all over to pick your authoritarian alphabet soup organization. Okay. So having a NAS is kind of step one here, right? And having the data be stored on something that doesn't have as simple of attack vectors as a full on computer does is a very great and wonderful thing. Okay, like there's no real key logger necessarily. I mean, yes, this can be done, but there's not really so much a key logger or other things to do to a NAS, okay, when, you know, they like the person, the, the potential attacker can't see your, um, you know, you know they, there's no screen attached to it, right? So that's a very good thing. Um, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of options. Just having a NAS alone eliminates a lot of appeal to the device. They're also a lot easier to hide. Um, I, I mean, you know, that like that's, that's certainly a part of it. But basically, having all of your data in this, I mean, when you're running a NAS, you can encrypt those drives, right? And you're not, and you can do great encryption because you're not so much worried about the speed required by an operating system or by a, you know, a local operating system, maybe where you need to do some gaming or something like that, but get everything onto a NAS. Okay. All the important stuff that you're worried about, you know, getting taken away from you, whatever, get it onto a NAS. And, and you could say, well, somebody could just end up stealing the NAS. I mean, if, if the concern is that somebody will just literally pick up and walk away with your device, uh, or, you know, say with the NAS, I mean, then that's a concern with any device and you would have to do what Steve Gibson says, and that is lock the shit away somewhere else now, but I want to go a little bit further than just using a NAS. I really wish, and I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, how is this different than Google or Microsoft? Okay. This is the idea that I posited in, in the past when I got asked this question, I really wish that there were uh, for lack of a better phrase, some kind of safe house, some kind of safe houses where you could go set up your own servers, right? Set up. I mean, and, and basically Steve Gibson has this with, I think he calls it level three is the name of the company that allows for it, but places where, you know, like independent server farms effectively. I mean, I, yeah, we want, it'd be great if we could get to the point where, you know, we don't need servers anymore. Okay. Like say made safe, but we got to talk about that in the next episode. Okay. You know, before we go there, but as far as like the here and now, right now, what you can do and what you can actually purchase practically. Okay. It'd be awesome if there was just a place where you could go plug in your NAS. It was locked down safely, right? A place that had its own security and everything. This is this way you weren't worried about other people looking to, you know, being able to even touch your stuff. Okay. And the only people that would have access to it would be, you know, like the, the proprietors of this little server farm, this independent server farm. Okay. It'd be awesome if there was a place that I could go to where you get access to via key, you could get access to your NAS and it had a great internet connection and, you know, you rented it for, I don't know, 10 bucks a month or something like that. And, you know, your stuff was there. It was under the watchful eye of somebody who has the incentive of doing business right? And protecting your shit and not having a reputation of letting people get access to your stuff, whatever. I mean, just there's, that would solve so many problems if we could have that, but here's the rub. It's gotta be local. Okay. This is where it's not Google or Microsoft. Okay. Because you have to trust some big centralized authority as to where in this case, it would be buildings that are kind of all over the place. You know, these, these independent farms, shall we data farm or, you know, server farms, if you want to, or NAS farms, if you want to call it that, it'd be some, someplace local where you could really know the person, hell, you could see them when you go grocery shopping or whatever, you know, that it would be that small of a deal or it'd be run by other activists. Right. Um, but it's gotta be small time. It is not something, I mean, and, and, and when it is something that is small time, 
then it's not you trusting, uh, you know, Microsoft or Google with your data and making wide access of it. Okay. You're running your own cloud and it's encrypted and you're doing all the right stuff with that anyway, but it's being handled at a very small company, but you still get to drive to it and physically access it. Cause you can't do that with Google or Microsoft, right? Like you can't, you can't drive up to Google and say, Hey, uh, could you, could you take me, I'd like to see my server where my Google drive storage is, is located, please. You can't do that, but you want to be able to do that. And so that'd be awesome. If somebody ran these kinds of businesses, I know they're kind of out there, but there needs to be a lot more of them. And I think somebody could really, you know, if there's an activist somewhere, they could make a pretty good mint if they rented out part of like their home or something. And you could say, well, that'd be a hot target for the FBI and whatever else. I mean, if that's the situation, we have all kinds of other concerns to have as well. Okay. But if it's just a place where you have access to, you know, your MP3s, your movies, whatever else, I mean, like none of that should really be a concern. So anyway, that, that kind of thing needs to become a thing somewhere, somehow, some way, you know, and I mean, there, there'd be a lot of, you know, legal mumbo jumbo that would have to go down that, you know, Hey, yeah, I'm going to protect your, uh, your NAS to the best of my ability, but you know, shit can happen and I'm not held liable. And, you know, I mean like the proprietor would have to have a, would, would probably engage in a lot of legal protections. And I understand that and, and it's there, but that's an idea. That's one thing. Um, it's a shame, frankly, you know, speaking away from that idea, again, we're going to get into some practical things you can do here in a second. It's a shame that smartphones are such security and privacy nightmares because wouldn't it be so beautiful if we could just carry our stuff with us wherever we go, right? You know, in a little pocketable device, then there's no reason to leave it anywhere other than having, you know, and, and, and there's no really good reason because, I mean, we already know the, the multitude of terabytes that can get stored on micro SD cards, even if they haven't gone to market yet, we know it's possible. You know, I mean, you could, you could store every song you could ever fucking want and, and, and most of the movies and whatever else, I mean, probably on something the size of a smartphone, especially if you could hold multiple micro SD cards, you could make a device where everything that you want access to remotely could end up being on that little portable device. Uh, you know, and go with something like Ubuntu phone or like what, uh, what, what was the windows 10 technology? Fuck. It really was exciting at the time, not crossover. It's something like that where you would plug in a windows 10 mobile, which is dead, but you could plug in one of those phones into a dock and then it would turn into a computer and it would display, you'd have keyboard and mouse and it would, you know, be on a giant display and everything. And it would work effectively like windows 10 effectively, not really, but more or less. That was such a cool, you know, those kinds of ideas. Ubuntu phone was going to do the same thing. Samsung kind of does it with Galaxy phones with their Dex platform. Uh, you know, that wouldn't it be great if we could just access things that way, you know, but you can't. So how do you protect the devices? Um, I'm just saying it's a shame that, that again, you know, the privacy and security issues are there because if we had privacy respecting and security hardened uh, mobile devices, you know, that would solve a lot of this, quite frankly, but we're not there. Okay. And we're probably never going to be there because if you actually did those devices, right, they would cost even more than what people, the exorbitant prices that people already pay for smartphones. So it's not going to happen, but regardless of that. Okay. So what can you do? Say you have your laptops or your desktops, or maybe even your NAS, this could be done with all of them because the, the, the point of concern is usually the USB ports, right? Like this is where an evil made attack becomes the reality is with USB ports. Tamper-proof tape, you know, I mean, th there's that great picture that we talked about years ago where I don't know how many subscribers ended up coming onto Instagram and Mark Zuckerberg celebrated with a picture of himself holding up an Instagram frame or whatever. It's a stupid ass idea and picture, but the picture itself was very telling because we got to look at Mark Zuckerberg's MacBook. And he had tape over like tape over the cameras. He had tape over the USB ports. He, I mean, we saw what software he was using. He was using Thunderbird for his email. So he was probably using PGP. Uh, it was, it was a very, very interesting picture. 
uh, that we did a full breakdown of years ago. And it was funny because, you know, when you told when all that stuff that Mark Zuckerberg had done to his computer 10 years ago would have would have gotten you labeled, you know, a, a paranoid schizophrenic or some kind of like nut job or whatever. I mean, they would have thought you were crazy doing all that stuff. Oh, no, not now billion dollar CEOs are doing it. Okay. It's because it works. But so, I mean, taping over USB ports, you know, that's certainly something that, that one can do, um, as far as like preventing evil made attacks, uh, having a laptop, you know, and not having an actual desktop where you plug in a keyboard. Um, that's, that's a helpful thing because, the more ports you have, basically the more trouble you're going to get into. Okay. And you got, you got to grasp that. And so wherever a USB keyboard plugs into, or a keyboard, you know, if it's PS2, whatever keyboard plugs into, you're going to run into problems with that. Um, I mean, in again, this is, and I guess I could have asked the person some more questions because knowing your, like what your situation is and what you need you know, what you want to do mobily or, you know, while, while on the go, uh, is kind of important here because it's easy enough to say, well, you know, buy a little 11 inch cheap ass, uh, I don't know, Lenovo or HP or something and have that act as mainly like have that act or even a raspberry Pi and have it act as your server more or less while you're at home, you know, and if you're going away for extended periods of time, pack that thing away, you know, and, and, and shove it away in a, in a backpack, you know, cause it's so small and it's all in one, you know, that like that can be a very, very handy way of, uh, of really going about that. But really you're left with, you know, using tape right over ports, tamper proof tape, understand this, if it's serious enough, and if a person's knowledgeable enough, tamper proof tape can be beaten by simply using a heat gun or a blow dryer. Okay. Because that'll keep the, the tape from separating where it's supposed to separate and say void, right? When you pull it off, you can get past that with a heat gun. All right. A lot of people don't really know that, but tamper proof tape isn't like that. It's, it, it's good, but it's not foolproof. It's not perfect. Okay. So you've, I mean, you have that concern, uh, you know, to, to worry about, I don't, I don't think cameras setting up cameras is that great of an idea for within a home. Uh, I'll tell you, and maybe I don't, I should look into this, but the concept around Alexa guard. Okay. is actually a pretty good one. The idea of just having a microphone that is listening. Okay. For something to happen, some kind of sound, right? That is a far more, I mean, as long as it doesn't get sent off, you know, to Amazon. And if it was, merely something that, that, that occurred locally or that went directly, perhaps, you know, somehow the, 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 you know, the alert that it would go off if somebody was, you know, touching your devices or entered your room or something like this. If the alert that went off was somehow, you know, encrypted and just sent to you, you know, and it wasn't like, like the sound data wasn't being recorded. Cause really the only thing that has to get sent over the internet to you, if you're away, that something's going on in your room you know, or, or is happening to your device, all you need is the alert. You don't need the audio. Okay. So if there was, and I'm, uh, there's probably something out there that exists like this. Uh, but if you had an app, like if you could just, I don't know, lay down a smartphone or, or something like that, that was just listening near your devices and would know if somebody was nearby them or was like, I mean, you know, there's no real quiet way to put in a, you know, to put in a USB device, Right. Like that's going to make noise no matter what. And if, if you were just had something that was set to locally listen for that and then, uh, remotely send an alert again, the only thing that has to go out is the alert, uh, then, and and then maybe it could activate. I mean, yeah, you could get interesting with this and maybe you could activate where you could hear what was going on there. Uh, and maybe you could even speak out of the speaker of this thing at that point. Okay. But again, none of that would activate unless the alert was hit. I would still personally feel better if it just sent an alert. And then I would know when I got home to look around and see if something happened, you know, and, and check various things within say the operating system of my you know computer that might've been touched or something along those lines. Um, 
I, I mean, though, like that, that's where things, I think, get a little more interesting, but that, that doesn't actually, you know, it might exist. I'm going to look into it now that I think about it, but that could be a more interesting way to go. I mean, don't buy an Alexa to do, to do this, but the concept behind Alexa guard, where if you have the Alexa in your room and you tell it to, you know, listen for loud noises or problems, um, I mean, it, it's a pretty good concept. It's just, we don't want that data getting recorded. We don't want that stuff getting recorded and we don't want it going off to Amazon. Right. So th- something along those lines could be, could be very interesting. Um, you probably can't really hide your equipment, you know, and again, maybe you need it even powered up. Uh, I mean, most people I don't think are going to know what to do with tamper proof tape. Um, there's no really great way to like lock stuff down. I mean, if you wanted to, you could literally, you know, like fasten shit down and, and, you know, screw it into the floor or whatever. Uh, a lot of this depends on what your situation is. Okay. And, and how, you know, how to keep it from happening. But I really feel so, you know, there's some possibilities that I just laid out there. Okay. Again, tamper proof tape is, it's not perfect, but it's a fairly good bet. Okay. Um, but one of the best things that could really happen is if we, we did have like places like storage buildings or whatever, where we could, you know, rent out, uh, access, you know, and, and, and rent out basically plugging in an ass at a, you know, at a, at a separate location than our homes. Um, but a place that we can go and look at the NAS, inspect it, work on it, whatever. And we have access to it, you know, and, and where we have, and because it's our NAS, we have control of, you know, the encryption within it and everything. So those are the directions that I think that we can go. There's not a lot of practical solutions for evil made attacks other than like really taking the devices with you. I mean, I think that if there was more that could be done that made a lot of sense, Steve Gibson wouldn't have taken all of his computers out of his house and left them elsewhere. Right? So, <laughs> so I mean, it kind of points at like that, that there aren't a lot of great options as far as this goes. Um, I think setting up some kind of sonic alert, you know, would, would be really like, that'd be great. Uh, and there's got to be apps like that that fucking exist. I'll look into it, and if I find something, I'm probably going to talk about it on a Sovereign Tech proper, uh, because I think people, you know, everybody should fucking implement it. But again, we, it doesn't need to be something where all of the voice data is going off to Amazon, right? So, all right, let's uh, let's move on from that. Uh, great question. I love thinking about these sorts of things, and uh, for lack of a better term, wargaming, uh, you know, these kinds of concepts. Uh, I mean, we'll get into it maybe in the next episode when I get to this person's other two questions. Uh, I mean, frankly, I wouldn't mind a world where everything went sneaker net anyway. <laughs> but I, I don't know if we're ever going to get there. Not certainly not on on a large scale. We we never would. But let's let let's get into our uh, our album of the week, and then we'll wrap this baby up. The album of the week is frankly. A shitty one, <laughs> and, it, and it's a shame. Uh, I don't like saying that it, that it's a shitty album uh, for a lot of reasons here, because I'm actually a big fan of this band. Uh, the band is Quiet Riot. I know what you're thinking. Like, wait a minute, they're still around? Yes. As often when I bring up an album of the week, I know I get that response from people like, whoa, those people still make albums? Yeah, most people that actually had musical talent in the 80s uh, are genuinely talented, and they don't fade out like, you know, artists today who disappear after a song or something. Uh, so, you know, they keep going because they just have that, whatever allowed for that talent to, to, to come to fruition. But that's another conversation for another time. Anyway, they came out with their 14th studio album. Can you believe that? Their 14th studio album this year. Uh, it came out, uh, November 8th. So last month, this came out November 8th, 2019, uh, it's kind of a weird deal because the singer on this album, for, so you got to understand Kevin DeBrow died years ago, who is the original singer for quiet riot that everybody knows. Um, he died sad, he had a tragic life, no doubt. Uh, but anyway, he died. Um, quiet riot has made, has had a string of singers like Kevin DeBrow even wasn't always with quiet riot when he was alive. Um, they brought in other singers like for, uh, for the album, uh, quiet riot, which was, you know, their self-titled that it's kind of their fourth album, kind of quiet, oh, quiet, 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 
Quiet Riot's history is is so kludgy. Um, I mean, most people didn't know they were a thing until Metal Health, right? And then they did Condition Critical, then they did QR3, but QR3 was kind of technically their fifth album because they actually had two albums, at least two albums before Metal Health. So you see how confusing their history is? Anyway, this new album, Hollywood Cowboys, okay, uh, I mean, it's bad. And it's not like Quiet Riot stopped making great music after maybe Condition Critical or QR3, right? Um, Some of their later albums, in fact, my favorite album by them isn't even one of their ones from the 80s. My favorite album from them came out, I think, in 99, and it was Alive and Well. That has The Ritual, it has a ton of badass songs on there. I love that album to death. And its follow-up was not as good, but it, it kind of felt in the same vein. That being uh, Guilty Pleasures, you know, I, I kind of dug that. But point being, they have continuously come out with albums. I had the pleasure of seeing Quiet Riot with Kevin Dubrow playing. Uh, that, that was or with Kevin Dubrow singing. That was really cool. Basically, the only original member now of Quiet Riot is the drummer, Frankie Benali. Now, the sad part is, and part of the reason I don't like saying that this album is shit, <laughs> is because Frankie Benali, Frankie Benali found out recently, uh, or he was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's still alive right now, but who knows how long that's going to be. Um, I mean, he's changed his diet, and that's given him quite a bit of a new lease on life. Uh, like, he's, he's a, a vegan now, I believe. Um, and that has dramatically shifted how the cancer was affecting him, which, I mean, great. Uh, but regardless, um, he has that. And, and we, you know, you don't know how long, I mean, there's, he's still touring amazingly, but you know, you don't know how long that's going to go for. And this could be quiet riots last album, at least with one of the original members. And that's really sad. Uh, and I don't want this to like be their, their swan song, or it's not their swan song. I don't want it to be their last album. But it's called Hollywood Cowboys. It has their singer, the, the singer that they had replaced back in 2017, that being James Durbin. Originally before that, they had Jizzy Pearl doing vocals really ever since Kevin Dubrow died. Uh, and Jizzy Pearl does a good job. And they had, they had, what was it, Rehab? Or no, wait. I think Rehab had Kevin Dubrow. They've, uh, 10, I think it was the album 10. I actually like that album. And Jizzy Pearl was doing lead vocals on that. Uh, but before this album even ended up coming out, uh, Jizzy Pearl or James Durbin was fired from the band and, or I think he was fired and Jizzy Pearl came back in as lead singer. And that's a shame because Jizzy Pearl has a much better voice than James Durbin. And I think maybe if, if Jizzy was singing on some of these songs, maybe some of these songs would have had a little extra oomph to them. Uh, but Overall, I, yeah, it just felt like a very weak album. I, I was not impressed at all. I can't recommend listening to it. Um, I'm mentioning it that it's out there. Maybe you will like it if you're like a really... I mean, I don't think many people could be bigger fans of Quiet Riot than I am right now. But if somehow you're a harder core Quiet Riot fan than I am, and I'm not saying like, I don't like Quiet Riot like I like Kiss... I'm just saying by comparison, there aren't a lot of fans for this band anymore who, and, and most people who even would like Quiet Riot probably can't even name a, a recent album or sing a recent song off of anything other than, you know, between Metal Health, Condition Critical, and QR3. It's where I can do that in spades. Okay, not sing it, at least not well. Maybe better than Kevin Dubrow. No, 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 I'm not going to insult the guy. I, I think Kevin Dubrow had a very unique, interesting voice. Um, but... <laughs> But if someone is a harder core Quiet Riot fan than I am, and I'm sure there's people out there who are that, uh, I wouldn't have believed that until I saw all of the uh, the fans of, um, was it Stradivarius or whatever? Or no, Sonata Artica, not, not Stradivarius, Sonata Artica. I, I cannot believe <laughs> that there are like hardcore fans of that band, but there are. So maybe there are really hardcore fans of Quiet Riot out there, and maybe you love this album, though you probably don't need me to tell you that it came out if you are if you're a bigger fan than me. Uh, so, you know, maybe you'll love it. And if you do, great, let Frankie Benelli know somehow because he is not long for this world. It's a pretty good bet. And that's a shame. So, but anyway, Hollywood Cowboys, give it a listen if you want to give it a shot. If you didn't know Quiet, Quiet Riot was still around. Uh, again, it's a shame because they've had some really great uh, later albums. I thought Quiet Riot 10, I liked it. 
I liked it a lot. That came out in 2014. They had Road Rage after that, which wasn't like a really strong album. It was certainly better than Hollywood Cowboys, but regardless, uh, I mean, but yeah, when you get into like Alive and Well, uh, that I thought that was fantastic. Uh, QR, of course, that's from 88. I think that's a very strong album, even though that doesn't have Kevin DeBrow. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to explore of Quiet Riot outside of you know, those big three albums. And again, there's even two that, that came out before. I think they only came out in Japan, though, that being Quiet Riot and Quiet Riot 2 in the 70s that most people don't even know were there. But whatever. Maybe this will inspire you to check out the band's history overall. You're going to find plenty of duds. Like in 95, they had that album Down to the Bone. Not good. <laughs> Not good. But So you're going to find some duds. But then you're also going to find some real gems in Quiet Riot's history, again, even outside of their big three albums from the eighties. So there you go. Check the, check that out. Uh, if you don't want to, don't check out Hollywood Cowboys. Maybe just go listen to alive and well, it's a fucking awesome album or go listen to, uh, to quiet Riot 10. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that album a lot when it came out. In fact, I think I even covered that for an album of the week. And that was when album of the week was actually part of sovereign tech proper and not just on, uh, you know, not just in the underground. So I'll leave you with that and a lot to think about from this episode. You know, maybe you're going to secure your shit, install a new operating system, do some interesting things at home to keep other people from accessing your, your kit. And, uh, well, maybe you're going to go out and buy a star Wars book too. Who knows? So anyway, we'll wrap this one up. I will see all of you on the other side. <laughs>